All right. I'm gonna stand here. This is my main camera, and that's recording as well. Do you want, anyways, do you want the camera to, because I, do you want me to look at my Zoom screen, my web camera, or like my, the other camera I have set up? I, I think you should look at your main camera, um, whatever looks most conversational. I just want the best quality camera, because that's probably the angle that I'm gonna use. Um, because like when I edit it, I don't really switch between the angles too much, only like if there's something like engaging. Um, that I need to switch for. Uh, but you got AirPods, so that's, that's dope too for the mic. I have a podcast mic. Um, but anyways, I mean, I haven't seen you in a while. Uh, thanks for, did you get a chance to uh, see the conversation guide, by the way? Yeah, I have it. Okay, cool, cool, cool. All right, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Michael, um, you're a good friend of mine. Uh, I've known you since high school, like way back when. Um, I'm actually trying to like go back in time right now and get my way back into corporate America. So it's really cool to have a familiar face um, from that time, at least when I was like still learning how to you know, be a human being. Um, so it's really good to, to see you again. Um, I know the last time that we hung out was on that road trip, which was awesome. Um, but how have you been doing since then? I've been good. Um, it, is, it, has been a, it has been a whirlwind. Um, in the last year, I left the career that I've wanted to be in since I was in fourth grade, left news, left journalism, mm-hmm. went to PR, went to a PR agency in DC, left that agency, started my own company, started my own agency, and grew that agency, grew my current company from just me to soon to be 15 people in June. So it's been a, it's been a busy uh, year and a half, two years since, since that road trip. Yeah, 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 no, but that was a good time. Um, and it was great to see a bunch of familiar faces too, which was awesome. Um, but tell me about the idea of starting up a company because that's also something that I'm trying to do here with Fez and Friends, um, especially because I was just a teacher um, and I'm looking for a new job, trying to make my way back into corporate America because that's where my background is. I have a degree in finance. Um, so talk to me about the idea of starting up a new company because I know you're an entrepreneur and that's you know the space that I'm trying to get into right now. Um, talk to me about that experience for you. Yeah, I mean it, it starts off um, scary. Um, you know you have a you have a safe job and uh, income coming in and you leave that and hope that you can you can make it work and that's and that's scary. So um, for me, I um, had the idea actually a year ago yesterday, so April of of 2021, um, and I was doing it as a side hustle to start. Um, I was working to get my very first clients. I was standing up my website, um, and, and eventually, I had a couple clients that I was working on um, just as a side hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't quit my job until I knew I had basically enough revenue, um, enough money coming in that I could sustain my. I could make ends meet. I could. I could make my rent payment, um, make my mortgage payment. And um, so that's when I decided to, to, to leave my job. But even that's, that's scary, it's exciting, it's exhilarating um, all at the same time. Um, and uh, you know, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs have that experience that um, they you know, take that first step, right? They have the good idea and then they go all in on it and they right. kind of jump over that cliff. Um, that takes a lot of courage, it's really scary. and. When it works out, it, there's, not, there's no better feeling in the world. And for me, luckily, I'm, I'm thrilled that it's been working out so far and continues to work out because you get to basically have this baby grow up um, and this little infant of an idea uh, come 
to a full-fledged company. Right, right. So, you know, let's put that aside. Um, let's talk a little bit about the idea of entrepreneurship. I know you went down to uh, CES recently. Um, so talk to me about that uh, experience because I think that's a really fascinating experience, right? Consumer Electronics Show, um, that's a place where a lot of big corporations come together. Um, it's a good networking event, a uh, good networking opportunity. Um, so what were your big takeaways from that conference and what kind of people were you able to meet there and what kind of ideas and companies were you able to see that, that you're interested in helping develop? Yeah, so um, CES was a great experience. Um, it, you know, to see the cutting edge of technology and meet a lot of cool companies and some of my clients now we met at CES. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was out of this world. It was actually the first conference that we went to with Head Start. Um, it was a little weird uh, because it wasn't as many people as normal because of COVID. Um, but being there, just the energy surrounded by a whole bunch of entrepreneurs. Um, I can't really put it into words. Um, it's just kind of the energy in the air of all the people who want to see the next generation of things. At CES, there's a lot of virtual reality, augmented reality startups there. Um, you know, we, we saw people, saw a ton of startups talking about the future of experiences. So, you know, they talk about the metaverse, they talk about, um, uh, like I said, virtual reality, augmented reality. I have, a, I have a client who talked about the future of sound and experiencing sound at live events. Mm -hmm. um, so that was great. Um, and and there was pitch competitions and there were, you know, you just walk around and you see hundreds of different startups from, you know, dozens of different companies um, all getting together uh, with the same mission of just innovation. Um, and so that, that was awesome. Went to South by as well in March, kind of the same deal, that it was um, just tens of thousands of people who just wanted to be on the forefront of innovation um, and the forefront of entrepreneurship. Um, and that was great. That was great for business, but also just great personally, being surrounded by so many like-minded uh, like people. Mm -hmm. And so as a PR specialist, like what do you look for in taking on a client? Like what kind of companies are you looking to grow? What kind of spaces, uh, the spaces that you're interested in? And like, how is that experience in, in terms of being at CES? Like what were you looking for in terms of companies that you wanted to help develop? Yeah, so um, we try to look for companies with a great mission. So we only work with startups, small businesses, and nonprofits. So CES had the you know corporations um, who were there, big car manufacturers and stuff like that. We're not pitching them to do PR. We're looking for the startups, um, mission-driven startups specifically. So you know they're a, a traditional, just straight tech consumer technology company with no mission, just really cool tech. That's awesome. Um, but I'd rather pass you to a partner who I know can can do really good work for you. I want to work with the mission-driven one. So I mentioned the, the company that uh, we met at South By who is talking about the future of sound. It's because one of the founders is partially deaf. Mm -hmm. um, we talked to a mother who is trying uh, to um, make motherhood and new mothers make that experience easier for moms. So, so tech like that, that have an underlying mission to it, mm -hmm. is what we're all about at Head Start. And I'd say 80% of our clients have some sort of underlying mission there. So when we go to a conference like CES, um, we are looking for people who are combining innovation with being mission-driven. Okay, cool. Um, I want to throw back to our time hanging out together because I think we, we got to spend a lot of time back in high school. Um, one of the things that I remember the most was study hall poker. We used to always play poker around this, the, the 
the lunchroom dining table at that time um, because it's high school. Um, so let's just like throw back to that um, and just catch up the way we normally do because you know there's a lot of stuff in the media that I don't really want to talk about and uh, I don't think anyone wants to hear about that stuff. But let's just like catch up as normal human beings. So uh, how has your experience been, first of all, through life, and um, what have you been up to since uh, since our road trip? Yeah, I mean, study all poker, you're really, you're really throwing it back there. Um, I think that I won 50 bucks for me one day, and that was like the mo my most glorious moment of high school, right. is that I like won big at study hall poker when we were playing with quarters. Right. Um, yeah, they've been, they've been a long way since then. I mean, you bought um, a house too, which is awesome. Got what married. You, you bought a house. You got married. Super cool. Yeah, yeah. Bought, bought a house. Bought, bought my first house a year ago in January. Um, getting married this October, actually. So not married yet, but getting married this October. Um, and yeah, a lot, lot of change. It's weird being like in this these mid twenties and just experiencing all the change that comes with it and seeing all of your friends develop around you doing awesome things like you are um it's weird it's like in high school and college everyone's kind of on the same track right mm -hmm. you're all going for education right. once you graduate like the traditional education everyone kind of splinters off and does their own thing mm -hmm. and it's really cool to see how people are kind of developing and picking up their own thing and making their own path for themselves so where where did you get your first spark into like journalism because i know that was like the road that you ended up choosing to go down was journalism so what sparked your interest in that um because i think that's a you know emerging space not because during covid right now journalism is kind of getting fractured in a lot of ways where um, you know, you have CNN losing viewership, you have, you know, all these, you know, big companies losing viewership. Uh, so first of all, what, what shifted your pivot into PR and uh, what do you see as the future of journalism? Um, because I see companies like CNN trying to switch to virtual with like CNN Plus and Paramount going to Paramount Plus, you know, it's all becoming digitalized. Um, so how do you see that landscape trans transforming um, and how do you see the world evolving? Yeah, so I got into journalism when I was in fourth grade and I started a school newspaper. Um, and then went to University of Maryland for journalism, uh, went down to Richmond, was a producer and then an executive producer for local TV in Richmond, and then you know pivoted to PR because I was waking up at two in the morning and that gets old really, really quickly. Um, where I think the, the future of journalism is going, I think it's um, going to go more, it's gonna go the, it already is the digital route, but it's gonna to continue to go that, and it's gonna be more in, uh, short form doses. Mm -hmm. um, so you see a lot of um, new media companies popping up that are focused on only social, whether it's putting out news via TikTok or Instagram stories and reels or, um, uh, you know, short short form on Twitter. Um, in the sports world, you can look at the model that Overtime is doing, where they create an entire sports media organization that didn't have newspapers in mind, didn't have TV in mind, didn't even have a traditional website in mind. They only wanted to make the best experience possible for Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they do news, uh, high school recruiting and, and, other, and college uh, sports news. And I think you're going to see a lot more news organizations going that way. Um, they're going to be run by young people like, like you and I. Um, and there's a the legacy media companies, there's gonna be a, a place for them because um, as people start families, they turn towards more of the what their parents watch and so you'll see there'll always be a place for local news, always be a place for even newspapers and CNN will try to go the digital route. I'm curious to see how CNN Plus is gonna succeed, um, but, but there's gonna be a place for cable news as well, but I think 
really the future of news and the future of news consumption is going to be social. Mm -hmm. It's going to be more and more news organizations, not legacy ones, new ones popping mm -hmm. up, only dedicated to TikTok and, and only dedicated to Instagram. Right. Um, what do, you see, what do you see as the implications of that um, in terms of financials, right? Because the current environment is very saturated, right? These corporations are, you know, owned by Wall Street. They're owned by, uh, I mean, they're corporate entities. Actually, you probably have more of a background in that as you were a producer. Um, what was that structure like? And do you see a problem in terms of income inequality where now it's like just a handful of people, you know, being able to control content and that means less voices are actually getting heard and less voices are getting paid attention to. So that means there's an entire, I mean, we have what, like 6 billion people on this planet. If the future of media becomes virtual, then that means what happens to all the jobs, you know, like what happens to the creation of, you know, new markets, you know, what happens to technology? Cause you know, during COVID, uh, people are leaving corporate America. So what was your experience, first of all, as an executive producer? Um, and what's your background, you know, from that media land, that media point of view of how that structure worked and how you see that um, maybe even harming the economic growth of middle America? Great questions. Um, my opinion on, on kind of news media consolidation as an issue I'm passionate about. I wrote many papers in college about it is as long as there is and there's like an asterisk next to what I'm about to say. As long as there is newsroom independence um, from the ownership, no matter who the owner is, whether it's a private owner like a mom and pop newspaper or, um, you know, uh, Nexstar, who is my parent company or Sinclair or something like that, um, then that is the most important thing. When I was, at, when I was in the newsroom in Richmond, I did experience newsroom independence. I never once got told I had to must I had to run something. I never once got told I had to write a story a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that sense, as long as the newsroom and the editorial side has independence, then I'm not as worried about media consolidation. It's when it's very clear with some groups, and I'm not going to name names because I can't because of my professional, my actual day job, but it's very clear with some ownership groups and with some organizations that um, there isn't as much independence right. um, from the ownership groups. And that's where I start to worry about the future of news. And that's why I think, and then I'll get to your income inequality question here in a second. That's where I start to think worry about the future of news. And that's why I think that you're gonna see more and more independent news shops popping up and not going the traditional route because that becomes a, a decentralized media um, landscape. Um, it does kind of fracture the ownership and start to infringe on these pockets that uh, are starting to consolidate. And I think that's a good thing. In terms of income inequality, um, I, I think that the only, it kind of goes back to newsroom independence, but I think that the coverage of income inequality um, isn't good enough mm -hmm. in, in this country, especially in local newsrooms. Right. Too often in local newsrooms um, and, and national newsrooms, they only focus on the crime that happens in lower income areas or the organizations that are responding to the crime. So there's a big crime spree and a nonprofit goes in and, and tries to help things. They're not going into those neighborhoods every day seeing the good that is happening. Right. And that just it further exasperates income inequality that we see in this country. So I don't know how much the ownership, because like I said, I experienced independence when I was in, when I was in news. Mm -hmm. um, but I think editorial decisions and the newsroom managers have to go into these communities and Experience, experience the good and show the good to everyone else 
so that we start investing in these communities. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think it, 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 it's important. I don't know how much the ownership uh, drives that versus just good newsroom managers and right. newsroom managers who get it. And we see some newsrooms who do. Um, I'm going to give you an example of what in Baltimore. Right, there's the Baltimore Sun, which is owned by a big corporation now, but then there's a nonprofit newsroom starting called the Baltimore Banner. And they're they're showing a commitment to going into these underrepresented communities and showing what's actually happening and not just covering crime. And if more and more outlets like that with good managers pop up, then I think we can start using journalism to address these underlying issues in our society. Yeah, and I think that's an issue of, you know, systemic racism, which again, I don't want to talk about that. Um, but, you know, you did mention a good point. A company that I did work for, um, Amazon, is a company that actually exploits labor, right? Um, that's a company that I actually spent a lot of time working in a warehouse at. And um, they, I, I think, you know, a problem with income, income inequality specifically, right, is the supply chain of our entire country has, um, it globalized in a way, right, you have big companies consolidated like Walmart, you have Amazon, you have HelloFresh, you have, you know, Whole Foods, all these, you know, big consolidated companies. Um, And the jobs that they're leaving behind are jobs that are not the most satisfying. They're, they don't provide the best conditions. They don't, they're not satisfying to people's mental health, their, you know, anxiety. Um, so that's a bigger problem that I see systemically across the country, right? Because again, your background is journalism, my background is finance. I don't want to talk about, you know, the media as well. Uh, but I, what I do want to talk about is middle America and the jobs that we're missing in between, um, which is, you know, it tends to be global hunger. It tends to be global poverty. Right. And so what do you see about that? First of all, what interests you about the technology space uh, particularly? And do you have any idea of what the global economy of the future is going to look like from a PR standpoint? Yeah, I think the global economy of the future will be much more decentralized. You see it with 3.0 and crypto and NFT. Everyone is trying to decentralize all of these spaces. And I think you're going to see it in tech. I think you're going to see it in finance or an attempt to do it um, in finance. And I think that, you know, I, I heard a really interesting NPR report the other day about how communities of color are uh, investing in crypto at an extraordinary rate because of it's it's the ultimate uh, uh, a field leveler. Like, it, like it, it levels the playing field because it's decentralized and there's not one organization that's overseeing it. So um, I think that's, that is the finance of the future. I think that's also tech of the future. It's going to be all about being decentralized. But I think it's also about, that's, what, that's the future of entrepreneurship too. Um, uh, it, you know, SoftBank in, in, in China or uh, in um, uh, East Asia and, and investing in every major tech company um, has a crazy fund of trillions and trillions of dollars. But what you're seeing is that more and more entrepreneurs, especially in middle America, especially to lower income areas, are turning to alternative and non-traditional forms of fundraising. Um, they're turning to angel investors. They're turning to grants. Um, and they're even turning to smaller VCs that are focused on investing in communities of color. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the future of startups, and that's how we um, kind of lift up entrepreneurship in these communities that you speak of, is that we have to, not only we talk about decentralizing tech and decentralizing finance, I think decentral- decentralizing investment into startups is goes along with that entire trend. And I think that, that we're going to see that on a broader scale um, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as we move forward in the next, in the next few years. Absolutely. And so let's talk about that more too, because venture capitalism um, is also probably something that you have more you know, experience with as a startup, you know, starter, a founder of a startup, um, so to speak. So what was that uh, initial conversation like of, you know, asking investors to help you raise money? How, I mean, you had the background, of course, as an executive producer, um, but how was that, you know, initial ask uh, to make? Because I think that's one of the most challenging hurdles of entrepreneurship is the ask for money, right? Because nobody's going to give you money for doing nothing, right? And you know, you might be able to see that online because I'm trying to fundraise for this uh, this platform that I'm trying to create. Um, but if you just ask for donations, people aren't going to be willing to, you know, give donations. So, how did you make that initial hard ask of uh, asking for donations from venture capitalists to start your PR venture? Yeah, so um, for, for my PR venture, we were bootstrapped. Um, I didn't, I, I, I started it with like, I don't know, 50, 100 bucks to start a Squarespace site and I signed my first client and I took the money from that client and invested it into my business. So I never asked for VC money, I never asked for venture money. That being said, I've been with other startups that have and it's, it's tough, right? You have to hone your pitch, you have to be able to describe, sometimes you have to be able to describe the future of your company in 60 seconds and sometimes you have 15 minutes to describe it. Mm-hmm. So making sure that you have a good elevator pitch down and how you're going to turn your venture into money is, is crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, too often, I think entrepreneurs try to figure out how to juice the numbers and uh, VC will say, well that's just not realistic, right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to show how the total addressable market is $8 billion mm-hmm. and if we could just capture a small portion of that, then we'll be incredibly successful. When a VC really wants to see what are the actionable things that you're going to do to get to that point. They don't want to throw you to throw crazy numbers out there. They want to say, they want you to say, I can realistically get a thousand customers in my first six months and this is the amount of revenue that I'm going to make from that. And if I invest that revenue combined with your investment back into the product, then we can start to see the growth that you want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that too often, People are kind of raising expectations, and that's why you're seeing these crazy valuations from so many companies in Silicon Valley right now, mm-hmm. is because people are raising um, expectations and, and throwing out revenue numbers that just aren't realistic. Um, and so I think that putting a dose of reality in your pitch will always help you. So what, ha- what advice do you have for you know, aspiring entrepreneurs, aspiring tech companies? Like what were you looking for, and, and going back to that question, what were you looking for at CES in terms of what companies that you did want to support? What kind of technologies specifically um, were things that that you were interested in supporting? Yeah, my biggest piece of advice, I have two big pieces of advice. Right. The first is um, take risks. Startups are all about taking risks. So if you have a great idea and you're trying to decide between three different marketing strategies, try them all, right? And uh, if one is kind of out there, if one is crazy, if one is putting up a billboard with just, I don't know, someone's face on it, making this up, but like take that risk. That's all what entrepreneurship is about. The worst thing that happens is it doesn't work and you move to your next idea. But if you always stay safe, then you're never gonna grow big. So take risks is my number one. Um, and my number two is don't buy into the idea that of, of, of startup culture, right? Startup culture says you have to grind 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 um, days a year. Um, and that's just not true. We all have to look out for our own mental health. We all have to look out um, for our own happiness. And if you're looking out for your mental health and you're looking out for your happiness, um, your venture will do better. Mm-hmm. So like at Head Start, um, when I log off for the day, 
Uh, it took time for me to learn this. When I log off for the day, I log off for the day. On, we, have a, we have a modified four-day work week, so if I'm done for the week, I'm off. And I'm trying to shut my brain off. The idea that you have to work every single weekend on your venture is just going to burn you out and your venture will suffer. So don't buy into this startup culture, working around the clock and not sleeping kind of idea because your startup will be hard. So I try, and with all of our clients, we set our boundaries to say, this is what this is the hours that will work and unless it's an emergency, this is when we're going to work. We preach about start, what startup culture should be all the time. And we like working with clients who clearly uh, value their employees and their employee mental health and their mental health um, above uh, uh, getting an extra dollar on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, because we, I think we, we as a society have to do that work. Right, right, right. Uh, so tell me about some of the clients. Are you allowed to talk about some of the clients that you've been working with? Yeah, I can, I can talk about a few clients. Okay, yeah. Tell me about some of the companies that you're working uh, with and what kind of work. Because uh, I'm curious about the PR space. That's not uh, particularly a space that I'm interested in getting into. I do like journalism. I think my route uh, for the future is going to be in political consultancy because that's what I'm you know, ultimately interested in. I like making connections with people. I'm more of a handshake guy, um, to clarify. Um, but um, tell me about... From a PR perspective, you know the companies that you're working for, what the companies that you're searching for, and what what you look for in, in companies that you want to help. Yeah, yeah. So um, for for you, you asked about a few of the companies that we've helped. So my very first client was a woman who makes custom chicken coops, um, and she got on CNBC and Business Insider. Um, and we've worked with them. We have a tiny home company. We actually are soon to have two tiny home companies. We have, but then we also do traditional tech. So we have a few cybersecurity startups that we're working with. Um, I mentioned the experiential sound. We have an NFT kind of sports NFT platform um, that we work with. We have a startup that is uh, that we work with who is trying to inject some technology into the waste industry, an industry that is typically very analog. So um, when I say that we're industry agnostic and we're working with a whole bunch of different kinds of startups, I really mean it. Um, And it makes my day interesting because I get to work with a whole bunch of different startups every day. Um, So when we look for companies, we're not looking for a specific industry. We just want to know that you are mission driven, that you are innovative, and that we can get, and that we know we can get you in the news. Um, So the industry specifics, we don't really look for that. It's more of like your story. What is your story? Do you have a good story? Do you have a good reason for why you started your company? That kind of stuff. Nice, nice. Okay, so just, I mean, I'm glad that that's out of the way. Um, so I think that the issue, again, that's most important to me right now is global poverty, global hunger, things like that. Um, so what do you see in terms of the economy of the future, in terms of your perspective as a media coverage standpoint, right? Because I think issues like what we've just been talking about are blown out of proportion because it's not really important to talk about because everyone, you know, uses the internet. It's not like something that's a surprise to anyone. Um, What do you think about the economy of the future again? And where do you see this uh, shift to hyper online damaging the future of opportunity for middle-class America? So I think that the economy of the future will be all about kind of paving your own way and um, freelance work and gig work. And um, I think we're, we saw that shift before the pandemic and we saw it exasperated during the pandemic. And I think it has helped middle America that you don't know, you no longer need to take 
the $15 or less in, in some states minimum wage job at the Amazon warehouse because you can kind of find your own niche, right? The shop of, the, the great thing about Shopify is that anyone can start an online store and, and as, as, a, as a side hustle or as a main career, right? The great thing about um, all the million podcasting platforms and, and YouTube and Twitch is that you can start your own media company and, and make money because of it, right? So what um, what the idea of Uber and DoorDash and, and gig work started, it was only further exasperated by this shift to, to kind of remote work because anyone can start what they're passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that benefits middle America because you no longer have to go be a minimum wage worker at a, at, a, at, a, at a corporate job. You can figure out what you're passionate about and start that business, like what you're doing with Pheasant Friends, like what so many people are doing with um, freelance marketing and, and freelance writing and, and photography and you know cooking and, and whatever it might be, whatever wherever your passion lies, you can do that with very little sort of capital, like basically zero. Right. You can start it and, and hope that it catches on. Right. Um, and I think that, that that is so different. And you no longer have to be up on the coasts for that as well. Mm-hmm. Someone in Ohio, Nebraska, Wyoming can right. do that exactly. um, and 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 make a make their own career for themselves. And I think we'll see that more moving forward. Where do you see revenue streams coming in? Because I think that's the biggest hurdle that people see is, you know, anyone can make a YouTube video like, you know, we're doing right now. Um, but the problem becomes, first of all, from the PR standpoint of, you know, this issue of, I don't even want to talk about that. That's why I put the disclaimer. Um, but where do you see revenue generation coming in from this new, this, you know, gig economy? Of the so, uh, yeah, so if, if you're starting your, uh, your own, let's use, you're really good at making cookies, right? Let's use cookies as an example. You want to start your own cookie making business. It's all about partnerships and that will help you grow your revenue as fast as possible. Find like-minded people on Instagram, on TikTok, and and create a revenue share partnership, right? For every customer you bring me, I will give you a a dollar kickback, right? And do more and more of those partnerships. That is the future of marketing. It's not running Facebook ads, so you don't need capital for that. It's not Twitter, it's not ads, it's not even TikTok ads, it's not paid marketing, it is partnerships, it is affiliate marketing. Um, that is the future of marketing, and that is how you generate revenue very early on without having to have any upfront costs. Um, and so if you find those good partners, so for us, we partner with a bunch of, a bunch of different agencies that we might not specialize uh, in. So we're a PR agency, but I have marketing agency partners, I have sales agencies partners, where I say to them, if I need a startup who needs your services, I'll refer them to you. If you need a startup that needs my services, you refer them to me and creating those partnerships helped us grow so quickly mm-hmm. and so that's a way to start building those revenue streams very early on and that that's something that i was thinking about a lot and that's why i updated my linkedin profile to call this you know this platform fez and friends because um, i know trump was trying something similar he called it truth social um but you know truth social doesn't hold weight if you don't actually tell the truth um so that's a problem and what I try to clarify with my platform is I try to clarify that everyone that is part of it is called an independent contractor so that they are entitled to their own revenue streams for tax purposes, for liability purposes. Um, do you see that as a way of you know, helping grow the economy of the future? Yeah, I think, put, I think empowering anyone to be in charge of their own uh, finances and, and create their own revenue streams is a good thing. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that is the economy of the future. Putting individual empowerment more than corporate empowerment mm-hmm. um, is, is, is the right way to approach career growth 
to uh, to approach individual financial freedom, like focusing on that individual empowerment. How does that differ from your business structure? So, because we're because we're a startup, um, we are very different than the traditional kind of corporate model in that we have a four-day work week, unlimited PTO, we invest in our employees as much as possible. Right. Um, and so that makes us immediately different. Now, we are still the traditional, we have W2 employees, and um, that's just that's the way we run our business, but um, as long as any company, and you with Fez, Fez, or Fez and Friends or wherever, um, are investing in your employees, that is helping them uh, be, be empowered and figure out um, uh, what they what they want to be doing, right? Like we don't have any policy that you can't have any side work. Mm-hmm. If someone, if someone, if one of my employees came to me and said, "I want to start a photography business on the side," I'll say, "Go for it. Let mm-hmm. I support you." Um, and uh, and so they are getting a paycheck while on the side starting a photography business, starting that cookie business, whatever it may be. Right. Um, and so and then if the photography business got so big that they had to leave Head Start, great. I'm happy. Go do your thing. Um, and so, you know, we are not trying to stand in the way of our employees, uh, um, you know, finding what they want to do. So what is it that, or how did you go about learning how to set up the financial structure to, to think about the things like the W-2, you know? Uh, did you hire a finance person specifically for that role? Did you use that knowledge that you had uh, specifically before you got started? Well, my first, my, my first hire was my chief financial officer mm-hmm. um, because I knew I knew of the world, but I knew that I wouldn't do it as well as someone who was really in the business world. So my first hire was a CFO to set that up. Now we have like we use QuickBooks, which is just software, and everything is integrated inside of QuickBooks. Um, but I'm not trying to do my own taxes. We hired we hired a CPA to do it. Um, but uh, my very first hire was someone to handle the business side. Um, so that I could focus on what I was good at, which was growth and, and PR. Right, right. Okay, that's really interesting. Uh, where do you see the future of your company? Um, we, we're growing like crazy, so I want to I wanna keep growing like crazy, but be able to manage the growth. Um, eventually, I would love to open an investment arm of Head Start and invest in um, the future of communications and future of journalism. Um, we have, we, I, I want to be able to invest in the companies that we're also helping out, and so that is years down the line, but that is ultimately the goal. But really right now, my focus is on sustaining the growth that we're seeing and helping as many startups tell their stories as possible. And now, so this gets me into the political landscape. So um, this is where I see the big disconnect between corporate America, middle America, and the coastal America. Um, There is a huge problem where, first of all, people's uh, intentions are misinterpreted very easily. Um, people's behavior is scrutinized very easily. Um, and the stories that need to be covered aren't addressed. You know, um, I think that's something I, I talk about um, on my social media. I know it doesn't get a lot of coverage and that's, that's fine because it's all part of a project to move things forward. Um, where do you see the... F- I guess we already talked about that, but do you see how there is that disconnect where these problems are so irrelevant yet they're all that the news talks about? I'm not sure I'm following uh, your your question. Which which issues are are you are you talking about? Just in general, what 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 news media is covering right now? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that I do think that uh, oftentimes news media gets gets hung up on the on the on the like with Truth you know, Social, right? You know that that's like the big thing that people are talking about. You know, Trump and you know his uh, effort to create this new new platform. Um, is that? I mean. First of all, don't you think that should be a bigger conversation because he is a person that is notably a criminal or has, you know, said some things that seem like malicious intent, seem criminal. Um, but do you think, I don't know, just conversationally that media is focused so much on on actions rather than actual problems like the global poverty, income inequality, things like that? Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to see more stories about those issues that you're talking about um, and less commentary. I'd love to get back to the time that we are telling, not just talking about the stories that matter, but telling stories that make an impact, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and, and having less commentary about whatever it is. You less commentary and more news will be, a, will, be a, will be a good thing. It'll help me as, in PR as well, because we have so many, we want to break, but we have to break through the noise of, of, of commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's a, that's a, that's a great goal to have. How did that shift? Did you see that shift when you were a, an executive producer? Because it used to be the case that we actually talked about significant issues. Um, so did you see that environment shift and, you know, what, what made that happen? Because, you know, I used to watch the news all the time and it actually was relevant. It was actually like, you know, normal conversational stuff that, you know, is important to talk about, like those big issues. But do you think it's because of the exponential growth of technology, the innovation um, that you know transformed us into this hyper digital world? Is that what's causing this, or are there other factors in place? I think that um, made, uh, cable news networks started the shift towards commentary um, because they every TV station does a bunch of studies that say this is what people want and it's not necessarily what people want it's just what people think that they're supposed to say they want um, and so I, didn't, I think that shift happened before I even graduated college um, it happened in you know really starting in 2010 with political coverage then and it just has grown since then mm-hmm. um, that being said I do think we are seeing a shift where more and more underrepresented stories are, are coming to light through other forms of media. So people like Fox and Vice and these smaller outlets that are um, making waves or covering issues. I just wish that they, it was uh, more, it happened more often. Yeah. Um, it's an awkward thing to talk about too. And that that's one of the big struggles that I've had because, you know, I left corporate America. You know, I had a good job at Hewlett Packard Financial Services. I had a job at Panasonic. Um, and I left that space because to me, the biggest thing that was important to me was connecting with people on a human level, right? You know, going door to door, talking about healthcare, talking about people's immediate needs, um, talking about, you know, kitchen table issues like hunger, like, you know, income inequality. That's why I worked at Amazon. That's why I worked at um, Panasonic, you know, where we talked about landline phones. I was on the uh, landline phone team. Um, all of those issues First of all, in my opinion, they seem to be following me around, right? Because if you look at my resume, I started you know, in high school with you guys, um, and then I went into finance as a, you know, an account specialist at Hewlett Packard, which is a computer company, just like Apple, which is the you know, device that I use. Um, then I went into Panasonic, uh, where I worked on the landline phone team, which is now in a device that is used to communicate with people. And then I went into 
you know, politics, which is, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign. So for me, it feels like the media has just been following me around, whereas the world just continues to evolve. And I'm like, I just want to talk about the issues. And, you know, I don't want to talk about my career, but I recently just, you know, got removed from my career um, as a teacher, which was unfortunate. And, you know, that's something that hopefully the Attorney General of the United States can look at because that's not my responsibility. Um, what do you, I mean, do you see a pattern there or is the world continuing to move forward and I'm just not seeing it? Like what, what do you, what are your thoughts on that whole phenomenon? I don't think I'm following your question about, do, do I think, is it more, are you asking more about like, do I think that, uh, there's a bias, a systemic bias towards Middle Eastern descent folks um i don't know i i i i didn't see it when i was in news um and i i don't i i think that it's it's not just one group i think that oftentimes um the news news shows are bad at covering all underrepresented groups. Right. Um, and that's that's where I'd say I can't I can't speak on whether it's more or less covering one group, but um, and I never and I didn't see it as much. I didn't see anything like that in my newsroom when I was in news. Yeah, and that's why I think you know systemic systemic racism is probably the hardest conversation to have, right? Because that's the conversation that people often want to avoid and I think that's where my courage kind of comes into play where I'm trying to have that conversation and this is why I do it this way where you know I clearly am aware of what I'm doing you know in terms of shifting the conversation left and right um, but the reason I do that is because systemic racism is that problem that no one wants to take and it was really it's really good to have you on because you're a PR specialist so I think in terms of accountability um, that is why I wanted you to have I wanted to have you on at this particular moment um, because this is the conversation that people don't want to have and in terms of creating that paper trail creating that documentation right I'm not trying to paint myself as a god although that's you know the kind of interpretation that people are getting um, what I'm trying to do is trying to shift the conversation politely past you know the one conversation that people don't want to have and into systemic racism um, so that's, that's exactly why I wanted to have you on, but um, if there's anything you want, I, I do want to catch up about study hall poker and, you know, gambling and all that fun stuff, but um, that's, you know, up to you on your time as well. No, I, I have nothing else to add. Um, you know, I, I love catching up. I love when you were, you were in town and went to, went to dinner and uh, hopefully you're driving through Alexandria again um, uh, at some point, but no, I, I, I think that you know, you always have you always have a uh, strong voice and strong opinions, and to see you putting that into Festin Friends is, is great to see. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and you're also an inspiring figure as well. I don't want to you know put that past anyone as well. You know, I, I appreciate the work that you do, um, and there is a reason why I shared you know that that document with you at that diner um, because it's all part of this plan to help shift that conversation. Essentially, I mean, at one point I am going to run for you know president, which is not a secret to anyone because anyone wants to be the president of the United States. Um, 
but um, it's you know always a pleasure talking to you and um, I'm sure we're gonna have other road trips and we're gonna talk you know in the future as well um, but yeah thanks so much for your time again I really appreciate it yeah no problem we'll talk we'll talk more soon yeah definitely